Good morning. Good morning. Oh, I hope you all are doing well. Um, thanks, man. My name is Marco. Um, if you are new, whether you're here or you're listening online, I serve as a preaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. i uh, got really a couple of things for you this morning, but before I dive into that, if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Timothy. It's this short book uh, in the New Testament. Go ahead and open them to 2 Timothy. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 3, verse 10, and we're going to walk through chapter 4, verse 4. So 2 Timothy 3, 10 through chapter 4, verse 4. So we got a lot of ground to cover this morning. Uh, and so while you open or load your Bible, I really just have two quick announcements for you. The first one is in case you missed out or in case you haven't heard, a couple of weeks ago we started and released uh, a podcast here at Storehouse McAllen called Native Citizens. And our goal in this podcast is to provide you with a resource that helps to equip you for discipleship and mission. It was something that we could do and kind of just work into our work week. And so you can find that on the website or visit Apple Podcasts. All of that is available to you. It's free. Hope you guys enjoy that. Uh, you could also share it online. In addition to that, the second announcement is uh, last month we started this prayer night. We really just announced it a couple of times on social media, uh, but we're going to be doing so obviously from the pulpit, a little bit more on our website. And so we started a, a prayer night. It's once a month and it's via Zoom. Uh, this month or for the month of September, it's going to be hosted on September 16th from 6 to 7. And you'll have to register on our website so that you can receive a Zoom link uh, and, and be a part of uh, Prayer Night. The Prayer Night is led by Eric, who just walked off stage. He is our director of liturgy, and so he leads that and does an excellent job. Uh, so please consider joining us on the 16th at 6 p.m. Um, I think those are all of the announcements that I have for y'all this morning. Uh, if you're cool, I'd just love to jump into our time. So earlier this week, I was listening to a pastor who was, who was, and actually very, it is very influential. He has thousands of followers and he has a big church who I'm sure many people within that church love Jesus. And uh, as I was watching him, he was preaching on trust. He was teaching on what it means to trust God in regard to trying hard. That we do a lot of trying, but we don't do enough trusting. And if I'm honest, his message was actually pretty good, and, and uh, he had a lot of quotable, tweetable moments for the social media, and his message overall was very, very inspiring. I dug it. However, at no point did I see him read the text. At no point was there a call to repentance. At no point did I hear about the person and promise of Jesus or his redeeming work on the cross for sinners. Throughout his message, his congregation was standing up and they were praising this message and he was getting louder and louder as the praise got louder and louder and he continued to emphasize his main idea on trusting God. Yet throughout this message, once again, I never was pointed to the redeeming work of Jesus. I heard that God doesn't want me to suffer and I heard that I need to stop trying and I need to start trusting 
And the one question that just kind of ran across my mind as I listened to his message was, why not just preach the text? What is more alarming about this message is that this pastor is discipling his church to follow Jesus with a shallow understanding of what the Bible actually teaches. That theology is separate from our daily walk. You need to know that that is incredibly dangerous. Last week, we looked at the Apostle Paul's warning to Timothy on difficult times. And Paul went on to say that these difficult times, the ones that we are living in, the ones that Timothy was living in, are not the result of difficult circumstances, but sinful people. That people will become lovers of self, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure. And the truth is that because they come from within the church, they are not always obvious to identify. This week, we're going to see Paul make a stark contrast between Timothy and the false teachers and the religious sinners that we looked at last week. And on two occasions in the text that we're looking at and in several other instances in this letter, Paul tells Timothy, or Paul words it this way to Timothy, as for you, Or he'll use language like, you, however, making a distinction. Paul is telling Timothy, and he is telling us to be different, to be set apart, to be holy, to keep your finger on the text. Well, how do we stand different? How do we keep our finger on the text? How do we guard ourselves and the gospel deposit that has been entrusted to us? How do we guard one another? God through Paul provides us with three safeguards. This is on the notes. I'm gonna hit you with these safeguards. The first one is he gives us a model. And that model is going to be the reality of discipleship. Throughout this series, we've talked a lot about what discipleship is, and we're going to go ahead and redefine that later today. But at the same time, we're going to look at what it looks like, what is involved in discipleship. And so Paul's going to provide us with a a model, and that model is going to be the reality of what discipleship really is and what it actually consists of. The second thing that Paul is going to show us is the material. He is going to show and teach us through the Spirit that Scripture is sufficient for you and I, not only to know Jesus, but to walk in godliness. And finally, the third thing that Paul is going to show us is the method. We're going to look at this model of discipleship. We're going to look at the material that is Scripture and the method that you and I are going to use in order to carry out discipleship or to carry out this model and to carry out this material is going to be the urgency of proclamation. So we're going to be given a model. We're going to be given material. And finally, we're going to be given a method. You see, when we stick to what God has revealed to us through his word, we are better equipped to disciple one another, to point one another to the Lord Jesus, and to proclaim the gospel and introduce people to Jesus. As Christians, here's what you need to know. The work of Christ empowers you to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Christ. The work of Christ empowers you 
to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Christ. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read chapter 3, verse 10 through chapter 4, verse 4, and then I will pray. Here's how Paul begins. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, there's that language again, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped with every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word, would you reveal yourself to us this morning? As we open your word, would you show us Jesus? As we open your word, would you transform us to be more like Jesus by the power of your spirit? Lord, as we incline our ears, Holy Spirit, we ask that you pierce our hearts with the word of God. As we settle our hearts, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would convict our spirit. And as we receive conviction, may we also receive grace a grace to listen, a grace to repent, and a grace to worship. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. We're going to park in verses 10 through 13 first. I'm going to do my best to break this up as we move forward. And as I mentioned to you earlier, Paul is going to give us a model. And that model is going to be the reality of discipleship. And as I also mentioned, over the course of this series, we have talked a lot about what discipleship is. And and here at Storehouse McAllen, in case you didn't know, here's how we would define discipleship. And we would define it as meeting people where they are and taking them where Jesus wants them to be. Now, with that being said, one of the most common questions that I receive is the question of, well, how and what does discipleship 
look like. And I believe in these first few verses, the Apostle Paul gives Timothy a list of life-on-life occurrences. He gives him a beautiful picture of the reality of discipleship. And so here's the overall theme of this section. Discipleship happens in the context of everyday life. Discipleship happens in the context of everyday life. What does that mean? It means that we share life together. That's what discipleship means. Paul opens by saying, you, however, so there's that language, to be distinct, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. What Paul is about to do is give Timothy about nine different occurrences that are consistent with what Paul has already said with things that Timothy has heard from Paul, read from Paul, and has shared alongside of with Paul. And so when Paul says, I have uh, shared with you my teaching, the teaching that he's referring to is the gospel message. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, right? That uh, it is the gospel that is of first importance. Paul goes on to say that you have seen my conduct. What does that mean? Well, to the Corinthian church, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, wherever it is that you see Jesus in my life, follow me where you don't, don't. Paul tells Timothy that you have seen my aim in life. Also to the Corinthian church, Paul has said that his goal is to preach Christ and Christ crucified. That Timothy has seen his faith. That's very Galatians 2.20 where Paul tells the Galatian church that he has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer he who lives, but Christ who lives in him. The life that he lives in the flesh, he now lives through faith in the Son of God who died for him. Paul tells Timothy that you've seen my patience and my love. Also in Galatians 5, we see Paul bring out the fruit of the Spirit. This is what God has been doing in me through the Spirit, and you have seen this in my life. Paul says, you've seen my steadfastness. That is to stand firm in the strength of the Lord. That's what he tells the Ephesians in Ephesians 6. He tells them, you have seen my persecutions in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. If you go to Acts 14, the entire chapter is about Paul proclaiming the gospel in these cities and then getting beaten for it. And in some of these occasions, Timothy was there. Timothy has seen Paul get beat over proclaiming the gospel as Paul shares the gospel with Timothy in the everyday life. Paul tells him about his sufferings. If you go to 1 Corinthians 11, Paul literally lists all of the beatings he's gotten, that he's been stoned and shipwrecked. Discipleship happens in the context of everyday life. Therefore, uh, discipleship is both formal and informal. Paul is sharing all of these experiences as reminders, not to puff himself up, but to show Timothy Hey, you've been a part of this. You've seen me preach the gospel of Christ, not a different gospel. 
You have seen me walk out my beliefs and you have seen me get beat for it, but you've also seen people come to know Jesus. You've seen people reject me and you and I have had all of these discussions about the gospel. Discipleship happens in the context of everyday life. Paul says it this way to the Thessalonians. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Now why does a text like this where Paul is listing all the things that Timothy has shared and seen with him, why does this matter to you and I? Here's one of the reasons I think it matters to you and I right now. Churches like ours are starting to slowly gather again, right? People have been doing things online for the past couple of months, trying to provide resources and, and the like. And programs are no more. The programs aren't running. The ones that people, and you might be one of them, the ones that you depend on to disciple you or disciple your kids, they're no more. The programs aren't happening. The classes are not in session. All that you and I are left with, especially as we gather again on Sunday, all that you and I are left with is life. Real life. Every single day life. The exciting parts, the mundane parts, the ordinary parts, the frustrating parts, we are left with life. And at no point in this text is Paul talking to Timothy about the classes and the programs. They weren't there. All he had was life-on-life discipleship. That is what we are left with right now. Life-on-life discipleship. And in the course of what Paul is telling Timothy, he continues... This is verse, uh, I think it's 12. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The reality of discipleship involves real encouragement for what is to come. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. That's why he's telling him to be different, but not just to be different for the purpose of being different, but for the purpose of standing firm in not only what he has seen Paul go through, but to stand firm in the message of Christ Jesus, that he is the King of Kings and he is the Lord of Lords and you will be rejected and you will be hated and things are gonna come your way. Therefore, you need to stand firm. What does persecution look like in our context? For a variety of things, we can look at several things, right? Number one, we can look at social media. You can see how Christians are getting ripped apart on social media for X, Y, and Z reason. We can go across uh, the pond and see how many Christians by the hundreds are being killed for their faith. And then we bring it home. What does persecution look like here? Oftentimes, you and I, just if we're honest, don't really think about it. 
It's not necessarily something that we're really worried about, even though some of us have experienced it to some degree. Whether it's someone disagreeing with you, rejecting your friendship, dismissing you as a family member, almost pulling you away from social interaction with friends and family because of where you stand regarding the gospel. That is a form of persecution. Sure, you're not being killed, but that doesn't mean that it's not hard. Additionally, there are many who just don't think about it because they love their Christian bubble. And for the ones who love their Christian bubble is the ones who tend to forfeit their growth and maturity. And so Paul is telling Timothy, because of where you stand or because of what you believe, because of what you have seen, because of what I've taught you, I need you to stand firm. It's gonna get really uncomfortable. It's going to get really uncomfortable. As you disciple one another, make it a point to lead one another to the centrality of Christ. I didn't say you have to have the answer for everything, but you do know the one who does. And so it leads me to the question, why do many Christians struggle to stand firm? Here's what I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about, man, you've fallen or, or uh, not receiving grace. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those who do not stand upon their convictions, that is, their beliefs to which they preach. Why do they not stand firm? Why don't you stand firm? It could be because Scripture is not sufficient for you. It could be because the word of God is simply not enough. The irony is that it is the sufficiency of scripture that helps you and I as we disciple one another keep Jesus at the center. So then how do we do it? How do we keep Jesus at the center? Let's go on to verse 14. Paul says, once again, but as for you, there's that distinction again. As for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul gives Timothy several encouragements in this quick section. Here's how I would summarize them. We're going to look at three. Here's how I would summarize all of these encouragements. Paul tells Timothy, you ready? Here it is. Here's the golden nugget. Keep your finger on the text. Keep your finger on the text. The first thing where, or the first area where Paul encourages Timothy is in his discipleship. Not just the kind of discipleship Timothy has had with Paul, but the kind of discipleship that uh, Timothy has had from his grandmother and his mother. That he has been invested in since he was a boy. We saw this in the first chapter. We see that these two women were incredibly faithful to the Lord Jesus, convinced that he saves sinners, saw their lives redeemed and transformed, and poured all of that into their boy. Parents, I get to pick on y'all. Do you do the same? Do you do the same? This is another beautiful and familial example 
of the significance of family discipleship, the priority of family discipleship. Parents, hear me out. You are the primary disciple maker in your home, not me. You are the primary disciple maker in your home. You have a tremendous amount of influence and responsibility. Please do not dismiss this responsibility simply because your children are competent. Stop dismissing this responsibility because I'll do it another day. I'm just too busy. It is in this area of ministry that I often get confused. I've had a parent once tell me that what is it that I'm supposed to talk to my child about? The child's a little bit older, and they asked, what is it that I'm supposed to talk to my child about? And I said, well, you should open your Bible. And I was trying not to be sarcastic, because I really wasn't. But I was, I was op- uh, genuinely saying, you should open your Bible. Walk through a book of the Bible with your son. Walk through a book of the Bible with your child, and then begin to introduce them to Jesus. And as questions slowly come up, begin to answer them. And as I begin to provide the material, they got upset because it was that material. I don't get it. I, I, I don't get that. The primary way in which we are going to disciple our children is going to be through the word of God. That means you need to have your Bibles open. That means you need to know your Bible. Your kids don't ask you questions because they know you don't know. Now, those of you who are married without kids or don't have kids, I'm off the hook. No, you're not. You're not off the hook because as Christians, we have been adopted into the family of God. And as Christians adopted into the family of God, each one of us has chores to do. Each one of us has responsibilities. When it came to, for instance, our Friday night group, which I I love and I miss, right? When we started our group, our son was eight years old. And one of the things I told the young guys in our group was, your job is to disciple him. And they have poured their time, energy, and life into him. It's not just to blow up my son because he's not the only one. I've seen other people pour into our children, and they are not always married. You're discipling someone all of the time. I don't care if you're a deal or a tia or a friend or a cousin. You're discipling someone. And you know what? Your content is the same as parents'. Your material is the same thing that parents use, and that is the Word of God. Paul continues by giving Timothy the purpose behind Scripture. He says that the purpose behind Scripture is to make you wise for salvation through the Lord Jesus. That's really important. It's really important because it tells us what the Bible says. Too many people get upset about what the Bible doesn't say. Well, that's, what about science? What about the dinosaurs? Homie, I don't know. That's not the point. You're getting mad at authors for writing something that they weren't intended to write. 
The point of the scriptures is salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. And so parents, when you begin talking about the word of God, you're talking about Jesus. The second thing that Paul says about scriptures is that it is sufficient. He goes on in verse 16. In verse 16, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God. He says, all the scripture, not just the parts you like, right. right? Not just the clever hashtags, not just that one Philippians 4.13 tattoo that you have on your wrist that nobody likes, right? Like all of scripture. What Paul is talking about here is also the Old Testament. How often do you open the Old Testament and just walk through it and find yourself worshiping God through the Old Testament. Nevertheless, I digress. He goes on to tell him that all of Scripture is God-breathed. That little phrase that Paul uses, breathed out by God, the, the, the fancy Greek word is theonoustos, which means uh, uh, noustos is, is breath of life, uh, theo is God, so that God breathed life into Scripture through men. Peter affirms this in 2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. However, this little phrase, this little section of verse 16, Paul isn't necessarily talking to Timothy, though not in, unimportant, but he's not necessarily talking to Timothy about the authority of Scripture as much as he is talking to him about the sufficiency of Scripture. And that's where I'd like to park. Kevin DeYoung uh, would define this doctrine called the sufficiency of Scripture as this. The scriptures contain everything we need for knowledge of salvation and godly living. We don't need any new revelation from heaven. The sufficiency of scriptures teaches us that scripture is sufficient to provide us, uh, to provide us with salvation and who Jesus is and how to live in godliness. Going back to the purpose of scripture. When it comes to this doctrine, whether you remember it that way or not, but when it comes to this doctrine, this is where Christians are quick to forget. Christians are quick to forget that Scripture is sufficient. How do we know? Tons of Christians love uh, books that are about like spirituality but are void of Jesus. There's a reason Paul is talking to Timothy about the people from within the church, those that are going to be persuaded by other teachers and they're going to wander from the truth and they're going to pursue their own sinful desires. There's a reason. At some point, they began to think that Scripture just isn't sufficient. It's not saying what I want it to say and I'm tired of Scripture not necessarily answering my questions and at the same time, as I read Scripture, I just want to feel something different. I want to be pulled emotionally and not necessarily theologically and that's where we as the church go wrong because the sufficiency of scripture simply isn't important because at the end of the day when we start slipping that way scripture wasn't sufficient for us this is where we as Christians get in trouble it's where scripture becomes unimportant and unsufficient 
And so let me just remind you again of the purpose of Scripture, and that is to tell us and teach us about Jesus, his redemptive work, and the salvation of sinners. Once again, Kevin DeYoung, here's what he says. To affirm the sufficiency of Scripture is not to suggest that the Bible tells us everything we want to know about everything, but it does tell us everything we need to know about what matters most. The point of revelation is always to redeem. The words of the apostles and prophets are not meant to make us smart, but to get us saved. Too many Christians downplay the sufficiency of Scripture and find themselves frustrated and upset. Oftentimes, it's because they're void of the actual purpose of Scripture. Oftentimes, it's because another idol is tugging at your heart. Well, what does Scripture do? Paul tells us that. Paul tells us the next encouragement is, hey, as all Scriptures breathe out by God, here's what it does. It actually helps to shape you. Paul gives him a list. Paul loves lists, but he gives him a list. Paul goes on to say that the scriptures are profitable for the Christian. That is that we are spiritually and practically shaped by God's word. And he says that the scriptures were proof. That means that we are confronted with our sin. You guys, you guys catch me on that? right? Oftentimes people open the Bible like, I just want to find the meaning of life and happiness. And what God is going to say is, right here, you have a wicked heart. That, that's not what I meant, though. I meant kind of lottery-based. Scripture reproves us, that is, that Scripture confronts us with our sin, that Scripture corrects us, that as we are confronted with our sin and we realize that we have sinned against a Savior, that there is repentance, that the answer to what's going on, the answer to your wicked heart, to your dead heart, is repentance and faith in Christ alone. Scripture teaches that. Scripture helps to train us in godliness. That is that as we come to know Jesus and as our lives are transformed, we begin to walk in a newness of life. Who we once were isn't who we are. And then that we become equipped. What does it mean to be equipped? It means that we're ready. That we're ready to defend. We're ready to contend. We're ready to proclaim. We're ready to practice. We're ready to forgive. We're ready to repent. As we are being formed and matured in our faith, we proclaim. That leads us to the method. So far, quick review, we've covered two things. The model, which is the reality of discipleship. The material, which is the sufficiency of God's word. And now we turn to the method. Cool, I got the model, life on life. Cool, I got the material, that is the word of God. Now here's the thing. Oftentimes when we have the word of God, uh, some Christians, I'm not gonna say who, but I can think of some, right? They're all about like, well, I'm an introvert and so I'm just gonna hide. No, you're not, right? Here we go. The method is proclamation. What do we do with the word of God? We proclaim it. Beginning in chapter four, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Not only is Paul saying that the proclamation of the gospel is something Timothy should do, he brings it as a command and a charge in light of the return of Christ. So he makes it weighty. He's telling Timothy, uh, you're gonna answer to Jesus. 
So I'm not just telling you because it's a really good mandatory recommendation. I'm telling you that this is actually a command and that you are going to answer before the King of Kings one day. And so there's a weight that comes with proclamation. So he continues. Here's what Paul says, right? Here's the method. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. How do we proclaim? Or better yet, what do we proclaim? We proclaim the gospel. Part of that means reprove. That means that we're going to confront one another. But what are we confronting one another with? The word. Not your opinion. We're going to confront one another with the word of God. Our basis for our confrontation is going to be rooted in Scripture. He says that we're going to rebuke. That is that when we are in sin, we're not going to do this via text or Facebook Messenger or subtweet things on Twitter or post what someone else has to say and share it on our Instagram. That means that we are going to go face-to-face like adults and we're going to rebuke one another on the basis of Scripture, and for the purpose of repentance. He says we're going to exhort one another. Well, what does exhort mean? That means that we're going to come alongside one another. Instead of saying, hey, this is your problem, fix it, I'm going to come alongside of you and say, hey, here's the problem. What can we do? Now, that's the what. He tells us how. Did y'all catch that? I didn't read it. With complete patience and teaching. How are we going to rebuke? How are we going to reprove? How are we going to exhort? Graciously. Graciously. Face-to-face, online, doesn't matter. You're going to do it graciously. Being a follower of Jesus means primarily that we walk in humility. Yeah, we're going to be the loudest when it comes to proclaiming the gospel. And we're going to be the most humble when it comes to sharing that gospel, but also reproving, rebuking, and exhorting one another. And we're going to do it with complete patience and teaching. That means your Bible better be open if you're going to go and rebuke and exhort and reprove a brother or sister. So let's get back to that first part that Paul says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. What does that, what does that mean? It's kind of a sports thing, right? There's no off season. That's basically what it means. There is no off season. I'm just going to be honest with you all because it's just us, right? It's just us here. I really hate it when I hear, man, I'm just in a season where I'm just trying to figure it out. There is no off season. Like the pages of scripture, the text that what scripture says hasn't changed. That doesn't mean you're not going to enter into a season of hardship. That doesn't mean that sometimes you're going to wrestle with even spiritual dryness. I'm not saying that. 
But because there is no off-season, you and I have no excuse to be lazy about our pursuit of Christ. We got no reason. We have no excuse. Why? Because we are to be ready in season and out of season to preach the word. And then Paul tells us the even bigger why. Because there's a time coming where people will not want to hear or be satisfied by biblical teaching. Earlier this week, had a, it, was a, it was a hypothetical conversation with a friend. And the conversation was on, was on worship music. And, and we were just going back and forth based on hypotheticals. And one of the statements that he made was, uh, people like, I'm trying to phrase it correctly, uh, people like certain worship music because of some of, the, some, some of the words, some of the verses in there. And many of those uh, words or, or, or lyrics, there you go, many of those lyrics are, are meant to tug at your emotion. In other words, these are statements or these are lyrics based on emotion, not theological convictions. And, uh, and so he said, so I think that's why, that's why these songs are helpful. That's why people like these songs. And I hated that. Here's, here's why I, I, I didn't like it. Let's go to verse four and I'll, I'll explain, or excuse me, chapter four, I think it's in verse three. A time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. When we begin to uh, separate theology and our emotion or theology from what we want to do, now we are void of Christ in our walk and we're all talk. And the truth is, many Christians, even those who are in here right now, love music or love teaching that pulls at your emotion but speaks nothing of Jesus. But because it's in a mega church, because the production is baller, because this individual is super uh, influential, because they wear a cross, and because they're part of the Southern Baptist Convention, all of a sudden, it's got to be true. Those are Christians who don't have their Bibles open. Those are Christians who think Scripture isn't enough. Those are Christians who want teachers to suit their needs rather than God to reveal them their heart. And, and we talked about this last week, that if you got to give a giant explanation to get to some sort of conclusion that is rooted in Scripture, that's a lot of work to justify something dumb. I say that lovingly. People will want to listen to preachers and teachers say what they want to hear. These preachers, these teachers, these influencers are people whose model of discipleship is a walk that is completely different and completely void of Christ, whose material includes award-winning books on psychology, motivation, and spirituality, and whose method is preaching what satisfies our personal passions and desires. Church, are you ready to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus. 
you and I need to be ready to contend for the faith. Not just for those who don't know Jesus, but in particular those from within the church. It's like the way Jude says it. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all the deliver, delivered to the saints. You see that, that switch in his tone? Let me read it one more time. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Something went wrong. The church was being persuaded away from the teaching of Scripture and was going along with it. Church, we have been empowered by the redeeming work of Christ to proclaim and practice the gospel to one another and those who don't know Jesus. The problem right now is that the church is being persuaded away from the teachings of Scripture because of preference and cunning speech. Yes, God is sovereign and nothing will prevail against the church. And we are still in a season where the church is being pruned and plucked. Are you ready to proclaim? Are you ready to practice the gospel in your life? Are you ready to contend for the gospel? Christian, Many of you, many of you walk in arrogance. Many of you subscribe to poor theology. Many of you subscribe to really good theology and yet your life is still void of Christ. Many of you want your passions satisfied because you deserve it. If we want to be theological about a statement like that, do you really want to get what you deserve? What you and I deserve is eternal separation from God in hell. Salvation is not fair. It is grace. Don't confuse that. Don't be like, man, I just really want this because... I deserve it. Again, if we're going to be theological nerds, we don't want to get what we deserve. Instead, we have been given grace. Many of you hide behind social media. Here's, here's what I would say. Repent of their arrogance. Repent of, of self-righteousness. And don't just stay there. In, in that repentance, here's what I want you to do. I want you to receive grace. The point of discipleship, meeting you where you are and taking you where Jesus wants us to be, man, in that posture of humility and repentance, Jesus meets you where you are and gives you grace. He gives you the grace to repent. He gives you the grace to worship 
He gives you the grace to walk in righteousness, a righteousness that has been given to you as he has taken your sin from you. So as we begin to close, Christian, as we pray, as we respond in prayer, approach God in confidence because of what Christ has done for you and receive his grace to be transformed so that you would see that grace is your only hope. And if you don't know Jesus, you can come to know Jesus today. He offers you a grace that you cannot earn and is ready to pardon any sinner of their sin as they repent and turn to him. All of this, the sufficiency of scripture, the model of discipleship, the proclamation of God's word, all of that is rooted in the work of God for us in Christ and the work of God being done in us through the spirit. In a nutshell, that's a new heart. You can receive that. Church, we have been empowered by the spirit of God to proclaim and practice the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, your word is sufficient. Your grace is sufficient. The problem is that we don't always believe that. And the truth is that we are quick to forget that. Lord, you are faithful even when we are not faithful. While we are quick to turn to false idols and a teaching that meets our needs, we dismiss you, your word, your promises, and your work for us in Christ. Lord, as we come before you in confidence, may our confidence be rooted in the redeeming work of Christ for us. Lord, would you humble us by your spirit right now as we confess that we are quick to forget you. Lord, hear the cry of our hearts and may you reveal our pride to ourselves, our self-righteousness and our arrogance. Lord, your grace is our only hope. I pray that you meet us where we are with your grace so that we are reminded of who we are. God, I pray that we would loudly worship you this morning, that we would walk out of here empowered by your spirit to proclaim and to practice 
the gospel of the Lord Jesus as you have revealed it to us through your word. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Amen.